0: The Bones and Bobbins Podcast is now on Patreon. Woo! Would you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash bones and bobbins.
1: Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude yeah. and entry into our private Patreon only Facebook group which is a delight and also involves murder houses this week it seems it (laughs) does
0: it does i think we should be slightly alarmed that there's enough murder houses to be posting on there but equally delighted that there are so many people interested into the same things we are it is a wonderful space where you can let your creepy little crafty self hang out and not have to run any drama
1: yeah and to be fair it really was a questionable life choice that that realtor made to include those kitchen photos
0: seriously i think that was even saying. more questionable than the living one room one that i found because the living room like i can understand that carpet blah 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 but that kitchen one like dude just mop that get a swiffer like <laughs> but hey. Yeah, but
1: you can't because it's a biohazard
0: Oh no, that's true. Ugh. I
1: don't imagine they have the insurance required to do that.
0: Oh that's fun.
1: Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> ew. Uh that is that is enough of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet, where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins Podcast. Hello, (laughs) Morbid Makers. We are your slightly creepy,
0: mildly disconcerting,
1: somewhat sinister,
0: Delightfully discomposed,
1: opaquely odd,
0: merrily morbid,
1: marvelously misanthropic hosts.
0: And this is Bones and Bobbins, season three, episode sixteen, Feminism on Wheels.
1: I just got <laughs> out of nowhere. Uh, the, do you know the the poppy song, Girls in Bikinis?
0: I yes.
1: Oh, yeah. On roller skates yes. in outer space. Yes. Well, for some reason, feminism on wheels pivoted immediately to that I can see. in my mind. And so now I have um, that very peppy, it is peppy. dance hit. It's
0: oh, a good one.
1: Yeah, uh, I recommend looking that up, listeners, if you feel the need to have something funny and catchy stuck in your head for the foreseeable future. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, I'm Haley from (laughs) Red Handled Scissors and the Bones and... Wait, no, this is the Bones and Bobbins (laughs) podcast. Yay! Uh, um, (laughs) Yay! I'm Haley from Red-Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast, and yeah, yeah. I go by she and her.
0: And I'm Natalie from Uber Dark Designs, an official true crime creative. and my pronouns are also she and her. Yay! So hey, hi, how you
1: doing? <laughs> uh, I am just cranky about every part of adulting.
0: I yeah it's it's been a week it's been a week
1: yeah it has been a week i just sent you a present
0: you're the sweetest
1: a deeply practical present
0: again the sweetest because who wants to get themselves practical things i don't know i like practical things
1: (laughs) i I mean yeah so do i (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah my dad's going to be here in five days, and my house is still a chaotic death pit.
0: Wow, chaotic death pit. That's, I mean, uh, it's not really. That reminds me. It is
1: highly disorganized <laughs> and in need of a lot of help, but it's fine. Um, you getting there. I started putting up Halloween decorations. Yeah. Yeah, so I've got a, uh, a nice crow-related wreath hanging outside my door Ooh. to go with the welcome mat with crows on it, which has existed in my life since living in New York. So uh, <laughs> that has always been my, well, it was my in front of my apartment doormat, but, but now it's there, and I got the most ridiculous green pumpkin. Oh. Like, like seafoam green. It, real pumpkin. Really? And it just looks fake. And my across the street neighbor saw it in my kitchen before I put it outside and was like poking at it, trying to figure out if it was real or if it was resin, because it's just so... It looks very fake, and I, I like it. I have a definite aesthetic going at the moment.
0: Nice. Did she get that at a pumpkin farm?
1: Uh, there's this local produce place that um, makes like they're where you stop to get like good local preserves and maple syrup and gotcha. whatnot and they also have a bunch of regular produce and so they are like where you stop to get pumpkins. Apparently bougie pumpkins. I mean, they would have been that pumpkin would have been very expensive in Brooklyn, Uh, (laughs) but it was normal here, so so that's good. So I have a green one, an orange one, and a white one. Nice, all the same general shape, various sizes. I'm feeling pleased. Very nice. How are you? I'm actually
0: pretty good uh, we've not acquired our pumpkins yet because we do that as a family and eldest mm-hmm. is off of college last trip home we did not make it to pumpkin procurement but right. this weekend we are taking a trip a road trip back to whence we came and we're going to try to hunt down the pumpkin cart where we get our pumpkins every year and take pictures on and hopefully they are still there and hopefully they still have pumpkins. I also hope they still have spaghetti squash
1: because I love that shit.
0: Um, also, I think they
1: probably will because they definitely still do here.
0: Yay. Uh, yeah. Two good things from this week number one um i think i mentioned Mm -hmm. in one of our i don't know if it was the patreon or the main episode that um i got slightly called not called out necessarily but inquired by a patron (laughs) about whether Uh or not i had knitted the socks that i swore i was going to knit um and like two years you mean those (laughs)
1: socks that you never started
0: right 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 Mm
1: -hmm. um
0: (laughs) so i have i have researched method because if you are not a crafter i mean even if you're Mm. if you're not a knitter you may not know (laughs) that there is now (laughs) dpns magic loop uh, double circulars there's different
1: ways i mean that has been the case for like Mm, as long as any of those things have existed
0: yeah well as somebody who is scared i okay i used to be scared of double-pointed needles in general i call them the double-pointed needles of death because i'm a little derpy a little clumsy and i always imagine myself accidentally killing myself by impaling myself on one of those things um and to i mean juggle... you can
1: get them that sharp but you don't have to i know
0: i mean and like two straight needles fine but juggling that many of them to make a sock and they're so thin and tiny oof no but then my friend matt was like i can learn you the ways of the double pointed needles and so him and i uh sat down and i made a hat in an afternoon like just getting used to how to do how to do all i was like this is not as nearly as scary as i thought and
1: no it just seems like it ought to be right more complicated than it is
0: So, uh, upon all of my research, I'm going DPNs for my first pair. I'm just going to go with some self-striping sock yarn. And uh, the last part is to pick a pattern because there's different ways to do socks, whether you're doing toe up or (laughs) all the different ways.
1: I was going to ask how you. So,
0: if not, that's the last step. Do it. And then. To... May I make
1: a suggestion?
0: Yes, ab- absolutely. Suggest to me please.
1: Okay, as someone whose calves are proportionally larger than people seem to think lady calves are, <laughs> um I have found that toe up allows for the most um flexibility with trying on and making adjustments
0: which is where I was leaning. So
1: yes, it's decided. And also it's really fun to turn the heel. (laughs) And then by the time you're done with any of that complicated stuff and turning a heel isn't actually complicated, it just seems like it is. It's just short rows. Like that's really it. (laughs) Just short rows. Um, It's just short rows that... Don't make sense if you don't think geometrically, but once you do it once, you will totally understand. You've heard it here, folks. And yeah. Do a toe up. No, I promise. Like, (laughs) I was super, super intimidated. I started doing um, toe up mostly to avoid having to do Kitchener stitch.
0: (laughs) Valid, very Um, valid.
1: (laughs) Yep, because I hate it. Yeah. But,
0: I don't know many that truly like
1: it no, but I think it's a good it's a nice way to start yeah um you can get like a better smoother um like more rounded toe finish if you're doing um a uh, top down but yeah I don't know that unless you're using like Very specific, made-to-measure-to-your-foot patterns for very specific, like hiking or something. It doesn't matter.
0: So this all is a bit of a victory for me because I will overthink myself to death and Mm -hmm. over-research myself to death. as have a podcast. Um, So the fact that I was like, (gasps) I'm going to figure this out and I've honed in now... Now I also built in, I'm also building in an accountability factor um, and I have found that there are people that will either hang out with me or knit along with me or basically I'm going to have a
1: little online craft
0: coven. (laughs) So like.
1: I'll cast on socks with you. I love making socks.
0: Awesome. So boom. That's one of my big wins for this week.
1: I would have to find my yarn (laughs) and needles and
0: yeah i have to pick i have to acquire i have to acquire sock yarn and needleage this weekend um Mm -hmm.
1: which makes me do you have the book knitting rules um by stephanie pearl mcphee i do not her sock recipe Mm -hmm. is what taught me how to make socks
0: Perfect. I will add that to my list of things to require this weekend.
1: I cannot remember if it is top down or toe up, but it completely demystified all of sock making.
0: Nice. I need that. Um, So, yeah, and I'm just going to get because I have actually have a friend that does. There's so many amazing yarn dyers out there. And here's the thing. Oh, yeah. Most of them do sock weight <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I'm a chunky gal. i like, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a four and up. <laughs> that's, that's where I love. Uh, so I, but now I'll be able to, um, to get sock gown from people that I adore. Uh, Lady Pearl is the lady that I adore, Lindsay. Um, so that's good. And then I also discovered because when I do creative designing work, mm-hmm I like to have stuff in the background. Usually it's podcasts. Sometimes it's a show. Uh, And this week I discovered a show. Now, I watch it on Discovery Plus. um, So I'm not sure, like, where it airs on regular TV. But it's called We Bought a Funeral Home. And at first I was like, It is so (laughs) fucking delightful. And the gist is this British family who is living in in, I almost said, Canada,
1: in Canada. In Canada. They
0: move from Toronto to a small co- town called Dresden and they buy a 12,000 square foot funeral home
1: to Oh, that's a fucking gigantic funeral home to remodel into like, their personal home.
0: And it I have is, several questions. It's wonderful. <laughs> Ask away. I may know the answers. <laughs>
1: Oh, no, I mean, (laughs) I have noticed um, that the most commonly, like, well-preserved Victorian homes that are the age of my home that aren't um, broken up into individual apartments are almost always funeral homes. Exactly. And this So this family 12, is 1000 square feet though.
0: Yeah. This family like, is My house is 5000. I know, I was trying to figure it out. Like I was <laughs> I was looking at it and I was trying to math your house how it would fit into it. Um the, Yeah,
1: I mean mine is technically a mansion and that is like a fucking estate.
0: It, it is, and
1: wow. so this family
0: is, it's a, it's a husband and wife slash mom and dad. There's a 19-year-old mm-hmm. son, and I can't remember, I think the daughter's like 12. Yeah. 12 or 13. It is the sweetest family. Like, yes, they dress in black, but they're not like super overly dramatic, goth.
1: Oh my gosh, they're British goth family. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and you would love you would love the mother's Heather, you would love her design aesthetic. Like I think you would really enjoy this show. Um it's not overproduced. Right, wait, what's
1: it called now? We, we bought, bought a funeral home. Open it Our funeral. We bought a funeral home.
0: Okay. And uh it's not overly produced. The family's very genuine. They seem like lovely people. The contractor is cool. There's not they don't overplay dramatics. Uh, they do have a, you will appreciate that they have, uh, they discover early on that they have bats (laughs) in the building.
1: Did I tell you that I made a bat mad? Oh, no. Another one. Another one. Okay, I, I have now found it. And I also already have Discovery Plus, so we know what I'm doing later. Yes! You also let um, me know how you
0: like it. I think there's like five episodes out, but delightful. Delightful. Yeah. Just a really I am, great watch.
1: I, I'm into... I'm about to fall into um, home restoration TV, like branching out beyond this old house. Oh, this is a good... I feel it on the horizon. This is a good branch for you because yeah there. oh yeah. i want to see all
0: of the things but you're gonna watch it so <laughs> it's great all right oh, well great. i will
1: text you excitedly Yay! um and possibly uh chatter excitedly at the facebook group nice. um but yeah so i i think that i mentioned on the last episode or maybe the patreon episode that the murder shack came down yes um not like on its own like we paid (laughs) someone to bring it down um and as we were watching it come down just this incensed bat (gasps) flew out from um one of the basements because the murder shack was connected to the basements it's it's a whole bunch of bullshit and I wonder if it was the one I've already escorted out once. Oh,
0: that would make sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean it's fine. The um, even if it gets back in there, the that basement is like it's um the building on top that not the murder shack, but other parts are uh, is a barn, so it has like the multi level um. Like, grates and stuff like that. Mm. So the bat can get in and out if it needs to. Nice. But, like, hmm, oops. Sorry, buddy. Oopsie doops. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about things.
0: Uh, We should. Uh, In fact, we should thank our Fantastic Curiosity Shop members. Oh, shit. That was supposed to be me. (laughs) 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 No. If you join us today... You'll get yourself a very special, totally normal, not at all creepy shout-out welcome in our next episode.
1: It's true, because you're the best. Uh And we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you. Absolutely.
0: And... If you want an on Osman, not only are you going to get uh, some really great surprises and stuff, but you're also going to get a huge backlog of Patreon-only episodes. Like, over 50. I think we're closing it on 60 at this point, actually. Um, so, all of the listening joys and some, you know, outbursts yes. that you can hear, I think, I think I posted... My child burping. Uh you bloopers are posted. <laughs> we, we get we get a little more personal. We d- d- dry We accidentally
1: yes. dox ourselves and drop our kids' names. It's fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, I definitely accidentally doxed myself. Not that it was going to be very hard to find me, because you know, property records. But oh boy. They get us anyway, Glory. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Join so, us, uh, Give dust. Do join us. Speaking of gifts. Yeah. Today, I am going to talk about one of the gifts I think that's probably asked for more than almost anything else.
1: Especially around the holiday season.
0: Yep. I mean, bicycles. Ah, uh, and nothing quite puts the fun and functional, like the Humble Bicycle, which has... Unless been... you
1: get hit by a car while riding it. Yeah, well... Ask how I know. Oh, no. Uh... <laughs> and I guess it was technically a truck, not a car. Oh, geez. But, yes. Oh, anyway. my goodness. Ah. Uh,
0: there will be mentions of accidents, I believe. Uh... But uh, so it's easy to see how as an as an invention, it would be revolutionary. But did you know that it also helped fuel a
1: revolution? No. <laughs> well, uh, actually, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I'm going to say you do. <laughs> um, so that's what we're going to kind of tandem tackle today. I'm going to start
1: did you home. make a tandem bicycle joke on purpose?
0: <laughs> I didn't <laughs>
1: okay that was just, just my... needed to
0: no mm-hmm. <laughs> that was just my inner, right. my inner pun lover coming out uh, without even knowing it uh, that so... I was
1: just checking <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm gonna start with the history of bicycles and typically when I say I take you back to the beginning of things it's usually you know to my favorite Egyptians. But today we're only going back to the early 19th century where I try to navigate. I was a... going to be
1: really impressed if you tied the Egyptians into this.
0: <laughs> i given enough time I probably could, but yeah, no. That would also make for a very long episode. Uh, mm-hmm. So today I'm going to try to navigate the pretty bumpy road to try to answer the whole who invented the bicycle question. Um, and it begins with something that was dubbed the dandy horse. Now, when I when I say it was dubbed the dandy horse, it was not a joy. It was not a, a term of endearment. It was meant to be like derogatory.
1: Well, neither was dandy.
0: Right. So that's why you know dandy. Anyway. Uh, it's given name was the Lauf machine, which essentially translates to a running machine. And uh-huh. it was given it by its inventor, German Baron Karl von Dres in 1817. He would later patent it. You know what? F- huh?
1: Oh, I was, that isn't what it's actually called in German now. So that's funny.
0: Right uh yeah. he would later sorry pat- entirely okay. different name <laughs> he mm-hmm. would later patent it in france in 1818 using the name velocipede which is super fun so the dandy horse just because that's a fun name even <laughs> and it was not nice uh
1: was a two wheel i'm a, uh, that's gonna be a band
0: yeah it, it needs to be uh a dandy horse So it was a two wheeled vehicle with both Mm. wheels in line and it was propelled by the rider pushing along the ground with their feet, kind of like in a regular walking or running method. The Mm. front wheel and the handlebar assembly were hinged to allow steering and it was capable of like more than doubling the average walking speed to around 10 miles per hour or 16 kilometers per hour, if you be people other than Americans, on the level ground. Mm. Uh, Drace was inspired, at least in part, by the need to develop a form of transit that did not rely on the horse. I am going to avoid the really sad deep dive into why that is, because it's sad. And it involves Mm. horses not being able to be horses and also having to provide his food and stuff and it's not fun uh no while drace's philosophy only enjoyed a brief stint in the spotlight before falling out of fashion poet john keats uh derided it as the nothing of the day his early version uh continued to improve upon uh, across europe so you know keats thought it was cool so it had to be cool Uh, (laughs) I mean,
1: (laughs) listen to Keats, man.
0: (laughs) Several manufacturers in France and England made their own dandy horses during its brief popularity uh, in the summer of 1819. Most notably, Dennis Johnson of London, who used an elegantly curved wooden frame that allowed the use of larger wheels. In the U.S., a patent for the two-wheeled human-powered vehicle was awarded to W.K. Clarkson of New York on June 26, 1819. However, in 1836, a fire at the U.S. Patent Office destroyed the only surviving drawings and a prototype of the invention was never built by Clarkson. So, wah-wah. That sucks. Right? Dandy horses first appeared on the footpaths of Mannheim, Germany in 1820 But they were heavy and cumbersome, which pretty much then caused riders to prefer to operate them on smoother pavements instead of like back roads and trails. As people do be peopling, even back then, their interactions with pedestrians, to put it nicely, caused Mm -hmm. many municipalities worldwide to enact laws prohibiting their use. And in New York City, a law was passed that banned dandy horses from all footpaths and public places. NYC yeah was not there's still
1: happening. a war regarding bicycles in New York
0: yeah uh, later it is des-
1: not great yeah I can imagine
0: uh, especially with I mean especially now like it's one of the only affordable it's actually you know yeah affordable and yeah. And
1: accessible. I mean, public transit right. is probably the most affordable and accessible. More affordable than just owning a bike? Uh, sure. Really? Huh. I mean, bikes need repairs pretty frequently. They're oh, that's not true necessarily cheap. They don't work in all weather. I mean, <laughs> you can tell they, they I'm technically do, but they do they you don't. can tell i'm an avid biker not uh-huh <laughs> um and also cars hit them <laughs> yeah that's true
0: so later dev- designs uh of the dandy horses avoided the initial drawback uh so uh they changed basically the um the ability to uh, conform with the height and the stride of its rider. So Hmm. you could measure it better to, it was just one and that's it. Um, it, One size did not fit all. Which is really important. Right. So an example is Nesiphor Niepsey's 1880 model with an adjustable saddle for his velocipede. Uh, built by Lagrange, uh, there would be cool. a couple of adaptations before we landed on the bicycle. Uh, from the 1820s to the 1850s, the mechanics and principles behind the Drazine, which is another word for the um, obviously because Dre's, uh, his invention would be seen in some three wheel or tricycle or and four wheel or quadricycle options. Uh, that would attempt to use pedals, treadles, and hand cranks, but their extreme weight and high rolling resistance pretty much doomed them. It was just pretty much too too big for the average person to be able to to maneuver and to propel forward. Uh, however, Fair enough. Those are heavy. Yeah, Willard Sawyer in Dover. Successfully manufactured a range of treadle-operated four-wheel vehicles and exported them worldwide in 1815. And those are just some examples of the variations. The first mechanically propelled two-wheel versus just I am walking this thing uh, is believed by some to have built, been built by Scottish blacksmith Kirkpatrick Macmillan in 1839. A nephew later claimed that his uncle developed a rear-wheel-driven dr- design using mid-mounted treadles connected by rods to a rear crank similar to the transmission of a steam locomotive. Proponents hmm. associate him with the first recorded instance of a bicycling traffic offense when a Glasgow <laughs> newspaper reported in 1842 an incident in which an anonymous gentleman from Dumfriesshire, Bestrided a velocipede of ingenious design, knocked over a pedestrian in the Garbles and was fined five shillings. However,
1: the evidence uh, uh, can but <laughs> it was of ingenious design. Exactly. Despite- <laughs> I like that they had to include that.
0: Right. Uh mm-hmm. the evidence connecting this with Macmillan is kind of weak. Um, mainly because it is highly unlikely at the time that. Artisan McMillan would have been termed a gentleman And the report is really not clear On how many wheels this ingenious design had So Some people say that it might have been Faked by his son Either way I think it's a wonderful story um, A similar machine was said to have been Produced by Gavin Dozzle of Lesmagro, Magro Les I'm sorry for mispronouncing that. I have no idea how... I forgot to look up the pronunciation that one, but it's...
1: Les. Where's the, the location? Lesmahago, around
0: 1845. There's no <laughs> record of uh, Dalzell ever having laid claim to inventing the machine. It is believed that he copied the idea, having recognized the potential to help him with his local drapery business, and there is some evidence that he used the contraption... To make his wares into the rural community around him. A replica of... That makes sense. Right. A replica still exists today in the Glasgow Museum of Transport. And that exhibit holds the honor of being the oldest bike in existence today. So it makes sense cool. that um, this guy would make this machine. My dad was a tool and die maker. And I can't tell you how many times if we didn't have a part for something, he just go friggin' make it. Like it in my head, it makes sense that he would be like, I need something that's going to do this to so that I could get, you know, my things into this next town or around. It makes sense to me that he would then build that one thing for him for that purpose and not be like, hey, yeah. I'm going to suddenly become a bikesmith. Um,
1: I, begin- d- I don't think that I knew that your dad was a dying tool maker that's that's cool and it makes a world of sense
0: (laughs) yes absolutely uh yeah it's uh and just something he totally loved to do too and he still does um it's yeah that's my dad i love him uh but beginning in the 1860s several different french inventors including pierre lemont pierre michaud and ernest michaud michaud Sorry, Michelle and Michelle, developed prototypes with pedals attached to the front wheel. These were the first machines to be called bicycles, but they were also known as bone shakers for their rough ride.
1: Ooh.
0: The first documented producer. I think there's a
1: bicycle bar called Bone Shakers in New York.
0: That would make sense, and that's pretty awesome.
1: I think Jeremy used to go there.
0: That's cool. I like that. I think
1: maybe it is owned by a Blackheart of Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Nice. That makes it even better. I think. The... And this might not exist anymore. This is from my misspent youth. Oh, that would make me sad.
0: Uh, the first documented producer of a rod-driven two-wheeler, treadle Bicycles, was Thomas McCall of Kilmarnock in 1869. That design was inspired by the French front crank velocipede of the Le Mans type. In hopes of adding stability, inventors such as Eugene Meyer and James Starley later introduced new models that sported an oversized front wheel. Dubbed penny farthings or ordinaries, <laughs> these oddly shaped machines became other oh, age in 1870s and the 1880s, and helped give rise to the first bicycle clubs and competitive races. What made them oddly shaved was the giant front wheel that was believed to help with shock absorption and speed. Uh, while it was a difficult, <laughs> dangerous machine, it was simpler, lighter, and faster than the safer velocipede of the time. Two new developments changed the situation And led to the rise of safety bicycle The first Was the chain drive originally On tricycles allowing a gear Ratio to be chosen Independent of wheel size The second Mm -hmm. was the Pneumatic bicycle tire Which allowed smaller wheels To provide a smoother ride Now the nephew Of the man responsible For the popularity Of the penny farthing was largely responsible ironically for its demise so james starley (laughs) right james starley had built the aerial spirit of the air high wheeler in 1870 but this was a time of intervention and when chain drives were upgraded so that each link had a small roller higher and higher speeds became possible without the need for that front large meal um
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and Beginning in 1884, an Englishman named Thomas Stevens famously rode a high-wheeler bike on a journey across the globe. So that's pretty fun. Mm. But then in 1885, Starley's nephew, John Kemp Starley, took these new developments to launch the modern bicycle, the Rover Safety Bicycle, so-called because the rider seated much lower and farther behind the front-wheel contact point and was then less prone to basically taking a header. Um, Ah. In 1888, when John Dunlop reinvented the pneumatic tire for his son's tricycle, the high wheel was made obsolete. Uh, The comfortable ride once found only on the tall wheels could now be enjoyed on smaller chain-driven bicycles. And by 1893, high wheelers were no longer being produced, and the use uh, lingered into the 1920s, In track cycling, uh, until racing safety bicycles were adequately designed. And you may be thinking, cool, but uh, what was that you mentioned about a revolution? I got you. Mm. So I just needed to bring us up to it. Um, Ultimately, with bikes came freedom for women in a way they had never really seen. A type of safety bicycle was designed specifically for women, in particular, with a drop frame in order to accommodate women's clothing. Never mind our genetically different bodies, but hey. Uh, However, the long skirts and the tight-fitted bodices of this time period made cycling an even greater challenge. It made everything a fucking greater challenge. Therefore, several modified outfits were offered to women that would accommodate the bicycle, which... The lovely Haley will be taking us down. Um, It's true. In instructive books written for women on how to ride a bicycle, many authors insist that wearing bicycle costumes made it easier to ride. In making a choice, though, women to a small degree were then able to take control of their life, not just in an ability to be mobile without requiring a man, but in how they dressed. And before Mm -hmm. I completely step away from that... So as to not step on toes, I wanted to read a verse to a rendition of Mary Had a Little Lamb from 1895 written by <laughs> Stanislaus Stange that I found.
1: <clears throat> oh, please.
0: Dear Mary, said the little lamb, it gives me quite a fright to see these girls on bicycles. They're such a novel sight. What is it they all bloomers wear? The sight my blood congeals. Then Mary touched her forehead thus. And gently murmured, (laughs) wheels. Okay, back to the freedom of transportation. (laughs) During the late 19th century, doctors began encouraging everyone in the public to exercise more often, and that helped pump up the popularity in the activity of cycling. Uh, But we mustn't encourage too much freedom for women, so doctors would push narratives to keep them from doing so quote excessively in 1895 article Uh, in an 1895 article in the literary digest reviewed literature from the time period regarding bicycle face and (laughs) noted that (laughs) the Springfield Republican warned against excessive cycling by women, girls, and middle-aged men the (laughs) the (laughs) the bicycle face was described as a face Usually flushed, but sometimes pale, often with lips more or less drawn, and the beginning of dark shadows under the eyes, and an always an expression of weariness. I mean, that's me on the daily without any. So I was gonna say me. <laughs> but you know, go off Springfield Republican. These and we've are have got bicycle face. Right? It's not rusting bitch face, it's bicycle face. Uh, face. These articles pushed forth the belief That excessive cycling made women Vulnerable to many diseases Such as developing an exophthalmic goiter Appendicitis Ooh. And internal inflammation His article was subsequently discussed And analyzed in the advertiser Overall these diagnoses Reflect on how doctors during this time period Viewed women and their bodies As weak which is ignorant And stupid patriarchy
1: Yeah, Uh, clearly they have never encountered a menstrual cramp.
0: Right. Oof. Uh, Another concern doctors had about women riding bicycles was over their sexual health. Doctors (gasps) believed that the bicycle saddle taught masturbation to women and girls. Man, I wish. (laughs) Riding astride anything was seen as too masculine for any proper women these physicians wrote in de- horses even horses yeah uh that side saddle uh, these physicians yeah, yeah, wrote know. in detail in medical journals about how the bicycle could be used for masturbation great quote, thanks if you're wondering quote the saddle can be tilted in every bicycle, bicycle as desired In this way, a girl could, by carrying the front peak or pommel high or by relaxing the stretched leather in order to let it form a deep hammock-like concavity, which would fit itself snugly over the entire vulva and reach up in front, bring about constant friction over the clitoris and labia. This pressure would be much increased by stooping forward, and the warmth generated from vigorous exercise might further increase the feeling." Wait,
1: they used all of those words? Allegedly because like current medical texts don't right. even refer to the clitoris. Uh, right. But also like great. Thanks, man, <laughs> right. for the uh tutorial. <laughs>
0: Let's face it,
1: they weren't
0: really concerned about sexual health. It was really sexual morality. And the fact that well. the bicycle had potential to awaken sexual feelings in women not only threatened their sexual purity, but it also threatened to destroy gender definitions and context of sexual morality. Uh, oh, ad- No. Add to this the freedom it gives and it was another way the bicycle was seen as blurring the definition of masculine and feminine characteristics, which, oh my goodness.
1: My, shit, shit, shit.
0: (laughs) At the same time as male doctors were stating the capabilities of women and the weakness of our bodies, even though they don't fucking know because they were guys in relation to the bicycle, bicycle enthusiasts disagreed with the medical assessment and asserted that the physical activity was good to improve one's health and vitality, And women began to express what their bodies were capable of for themselves through magazine articles. Women like Mary Bislett, Mary Sgt. Hopkins, and Emma Moffat Ting contested medical commonplaces and promoted new ones in their place. These women stated that cycling brought long and active muscles back to life and helped riders feel better emotionally and encouraged women to use their own experiences with the bicycle to determine their own physical limits and not what doctors had said. These women brought to public attention the positive aspects that help women riders. The bicycle not only makes them literally stronger, but also more confident in their own abilities. This, in turn, not only gives women a greater agency over their body, gasp, but also mentally strengthens them to take on their previous domestic role and explore new roles in the public sphere. Again, gasp, (gasps) which, you know, of course, men did not like. They did not
1: like oh, it at all. Heavens no.
0: And that's the point in history that I'm going to leave you on. Uh, because uh, Haley will be diving us head first into it. But before I do. I'm going to pick up what you're putting down. Nice. Before I do, I want to give a shout out to Andy Londonderry. She is the first woman to have cycled the world as early as 19- 1894, 1895. Because badass women are my favorite, and I shout them out when I can. So Hot damn.
1: that I really is love it when
0: right. I was like, get it, girl. Um, mm-hmm. so that uh, that's how bikes came about to be, and uh, how doctors are dumb. Uh, no, that's not right. Um, male doctors
1: of that time period. I beard. mean, <laughs> how they neglect the physical anatomy of women.
0: Right, and I. I have to find out that it's a it's a questionable source on that quote I'm guessing somebody translated it in a way that they felt because back then they were calling hysteria the vapors and putting people in you know if you had excessive orgasms you were going in into like a mental ward it was not I don't think that they described it specifically as such but the gist of the deal is uh that's how you could and that's how they said no.
1: I mean hmm. all I have to say is my bicycle and I have not become that familiar
0: (laughs) right like I don't I mean maybe that's why all those chicks take cycling classes but I would like to think that there'd be like a whole take this thing because this is I would think if it was popular it would or common
1: it would be we talk we share I mean there's There's a reason that padded shorts for bicycling exist, and it's because it hurts when you hit the seat. Yeah, which, you know, again, like, you think that it would be better to construct it, but... Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, on on the note of wrinkling one's nose at the patriarchy... (laughs) I am going to tell you about where bicycles and outerwear, for women specifically, suddenly caused all manner of drama and gasping and pearl clutching. Yes! Yeah, so um, I'm going to tell you about Victorian dress reform and the Rational Dress Society. So, at about the same time-ish in both the United States and in England, the first wave of feminism was mm, slowly but firmly roaring to life, I would say. and the beginnings of the United States Dress Reform Movement started in about 1871 with names that you probably recognize, specifically Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh-huh. and her neighbor, Amelia Bloomer. Um, and they started wearing a set of clothing designed by Elizabeth Smith Miller, who is Stan's cousin. And, you know, when you think of of the name Bloomer, I'ma go ahead and give Amelia Bloomer a nod with regards to Bloomers. So yo, what's up, <laughs> Amelia Bloomer? Um so this this made a bunch of people Especially men, pretty mad. <laughs> uh, but, as it turns out, uh, several things that made largely men pretty mad all combine into one sort of unstoppable sweep of progress with, Women's ability to dress, move about, and also travel um, by their own accord. And so that deciding factor was, as you mentioned earlier, the bicycle. And by the 1890s, bloomers were solidifying their place in women's dress. Yes. Yes, and so we will move on to the Rational Dress Society, which was formed in London in 1881. And when we're talking about these kinds of reforms and these kinds of moral sensibilities with regard to dress, I think it's important that we point out that we are talking ...about the rising middle class and upper class women. Yes. We are not talking about poorer women who have long needed... ...or who have long done and worn items and done jobs that... ...wouldn't necessarily align with... um, Proper feminine sensibilities, uh, so we're definitely talking about specifically high society women um, for the Rational Dress Society. This was specifically high society women in London, mm. but um, much like the suffragette movement that was also happening at this time um, in the U.S., were also very specifically talking about women who had enough money and social standing to withstand the scorn of the men they were offending yeah it was definitely not um, intersectional oh goodness no all right so there is An interesting article that uh, I was looking at on newspapers.com that was talking about this particular history and specifically about the rational dress society in London which I think is especially interesting because I mean it involved people with titles and it's always kind of fun when you've got titles but also it was truly organized in the way that I feel like only Victorian London could organize things (laughs) like with rules and shit and offices (laughs) and like hierarchical structures within the group. So making um, it far more
0: difficult than necessary. Yes.
1: So in 1881, Um, A group of high society women gathered in London to form the Rational Dress Society. And this was intended to make specifically Victorian women's dress more practical and more comfortable and more healthful. So within the society, the group actually came up with criteria for the perfect dress Ah. which included one freedom of movement two absence of pressure over any part of the body so apparently sorry bicycle seats (laughs) um no more weight than is necessary for warmth and both weight and warmth evenly distributed 4 grace and beauty combined with comfort and convenience and 5 not departing too conspicuously from the ordinary dress of the time so although none of these things sound particularly earth-shattering to a modern ear these ideas were spectacularly controversial during a time when the dress norms involved heavy fabrics and corsets and bustles and hoop skirts and just a lot of big heavy draped clothing and these This clothing wouldn't have been very conducive to actually exercising. Like even pieces of clothing that are technically made for that, like walking dresses or something like that, Mm -hmm. they still are incorporating huge amounts of very heavy fabric that needs to be cared for and picked up to keep out of the way and like it just you cannot freely move when you've got that much stuff attached to you right I mean it it just is true um, so the women in this group explained, that dress reform would allow for participating in activities that were physical and were supposed to be healthful. And so, um, obviously, specifically, this referred to cycling. And because cycling and dress reform... And also, uh, the suffrage movement. um, Lack of uh, movements for ceasing drinking. uh, Temperance movements. All of those (laughs) things sort of wrapped up into one time period where everything was set to fall into place for this kind of massive change. And so, because bicycles and pants suddenly provided a whole lot more freedom, an awful lot of movements that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being interconnected really truly were. And so, a uh, founding member of this society was a viscountess florence wallace pomeroy who was also known as Lady Lady, no nope. <laughs> lady haberton um who was the wife of the sixth viscount haberton um and in 1880 she took up the cause of dress reformed because she really liked to bicycle but her heavy long skirts got in the way and she wasn't necessarily like I think when people think of women suddenly being like oh yes trousers please are thinking of like the tight pants that men of that era Mm -hmm. would wear except that that isn't really what we're talking about at all right we're talking about things that basically look like t-length skirts and they happen to be pants but they involve a pretty spectacular amount of fabric and certainly do not they aren't something i would look at and be like who that lady's showing an awful lot (laughs) They're culottesque. Yeah, they they look a lot like culottes, um, and so she specifically championed reform dress, which consisted of baggy pantaloons worn underneath a knee-length skirt. And by knee-length, let's like it's longer; it's <laughs> below the knee. Um, and she also invented the divided skirt, which. I mean, if you've been anywhere on the internet, you have probably seen someone in what looks like a beautiful maxi dress Mm -hmm. suddenly do some sort of dance high kick and be like, ah, it's pants. Yes. Um, And be very excited. Well, this is more or less that. With pockets. Um, (laughs) With pockets. It's true. And so I think my favorite part of this, well, actually, let me read you the, um, there's a newspaper, uh, excerpt that announces the founding of the organization, which I find to be especially delightful. So this is from, um, excuse me Uh, July of 1881 from uh, London News and it reads the Rational Dress Society the Rational Dress Society under the presidency of Viscountess Haberton oh dear I have accidentally clicked Anyway, um, the Rational Dress Society under the presidency of Viscountess Haberton have advanced so far as to appoint a provisional committee comprising six ladies zealous in the cause of dress reform. Besides the treasurer, um, Mrs. Howis and Mrs. E.M. King who has generously taken upon herself duties of secretary, we gather from this prospectus that there is no intention on the part of society to interfere with individual liberty. On the contrary, the desire is simply to release ladies from the tyranny of mere fashion by permitting them to consult their own taste and convenience upon the sole condition that their attire shall be pleasing to the eye while conforming to the considerations of health and comfort. An annual contribution of half a crown will constitute membership. The society hope to obtain their objects by means of drawing room meetings, advertisements, circulating pamphlets and leaflets, and above all, by issuing patterns designed by members or others which have received the approval of the committee. And so, when they're talking about that, they are absolutely talking about sewing patterns. I love
0: that. I don't know if I like the fact that patterns are included anymore, or if I like the whole release from the tyranny of fashion.
1: Yeah, I think that the funniest part of that announcement to me is that... um, they are trying to reassure people that they aren't trying to uh, impede on individual liberty. So, like, were people afraid that suddenly they weren't going to be allowed to wear their full skirts and stuff? Like, oh, no, now you may only wear pants forever. <laughs> I like, don't think so. Um, so after the formation of the Rational Dress Society, there was a Rational Dress Society London exhibition in 1883. And its descriptions are kind of fascinating. So this is another, um, excerpt from an 1883 newspaper from newspapers.com a costume for climbing recommended to lady mountaineers riding pants I know right Uh, riding pants with an ingenious arrangement of small pleats at the back set up with elastic a divided skirt uh, and polonaise flannel combination garment and silk chemise, a hat weighing one ounce, a complete walking costume guaranteed all wool that weighs only three and a half pounds, Ooh. a dress for a fancy ball, um, Joan of Arc in full armor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. And a ladies' traveling dress that turns... In five minutes into a stylish dinner costume, and goes into a box ten inches long. One difficulty that seems in the way is the adaptation of easy clothing to a fickle climate. The one-ounce hat and the three-and-a-half pounds all-wool dress would come very badly out of a thunderstorm, and the divided skirt and polonaise caught in a heavy shower would bear a rather flappy appearance but we do not despair of the difficulty being overcome and then who among the leaders of fashion will start a new era in the history of dress by courageously donning the divided skirt courageously (laughs) so that is i want to see all of the (laughs) things so there are um plenty of cartoons and illustrations and i mean you can imagine the same people who are doing the political cartoons about suffragettes
0: oh yeah definitely
1: i can were involved in this as well yeah so um then bouncing on back to the united states just going to take another look just an overall view of the collision Of the fashion and the politics Of what was going on And the names that were involved um, So there is a historic costume and textiles collection At the Ohio State University Which I am um, contractually obligated to make a face about Because (laughs) I went to the University of Michigan for undergrad and i am told there is a sports ball rivalry i have zero further information (laughs) but anyway um go blue (laughs) so in um an article called reforming fashion 1850 to 1914 politics health and art that was written by uh, Marlies Shoney Uh, actually I I do believe this was an entire exhibition actually Um, has a collection of all of these different varieties of clothing that were being tried out during the dress reform movement that Began in the late nineteenth century um, and continued through the early twentieth century, so silhouette changes were obviously already very much happening, especially in like what we know about for Victorian fashions. Um, we are going from basically no defined curves to very defined (laughs) curves to no defined curves Um, and so the um, the foundation garments that were associated with creating these fashions and these silhouettes were often the items that were also contributing to uh, women's inability to move freely. So, a chemise, petticoats, hoops, bustles, corsets, all of those things that basically created a very specific shape um, onto which clothing could drape were no longer actually practical for uh women who wanted to be more active and so there were a lot of women and including the obvious feminists but also health advocates and educators Mm. that thought that especially fashionable dress with all of those foundation garments with all of the strange shapes um, were harmful to women's health for the (laughs) same reasons that you mentioned with regards to bicycling. And so... Which is just insulting. (laughs) Yeah. But I think one of the interesting things that I hadn't really thought about was that One of the less dramatic or less dramatically visible changes that could make a truly dramatic impact on your daily life is the um, changing of shapes and designs, I guess, of undergarments because those changes could happen relatively quietly. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily something you discussed with your husband. Mm-hmm. And it may have been discussed between women. But a lot of these things could be discreetly adopted without being Outwardly obvious that you were being rebellious, so I thought that was interesting. It is,
0: and it's also me. there is something to be said about having that empowerment of sorts. Like just mm-hmm. when you go out and you know, like you're you're brought under a mattress and it's super cute, and you know what I mean. Like there's a certain boost that gives you in a way that nothing else might in the same manner because it's like i did this for myself and i know that i you know like this and look good and feel good and you know and it could be anything this you know it could be even gender affirming undergarments you know what i mean
1: oh yeah absolutely and it doesn't have to be anybody's business but yours
0: um so there's a Yeah, there's a freedom in that because there's not quite the same safety concerns and things. Um, So, yeah, I like that. Yeah,
1: so this uh, article pointed out, and I thought it was interesting because I don't usually think about it this way. But it said that at the time, fashionable women reshaped their bodies. Bodies, not with diet and exercise, but with layers of undergarments that built up a structure that then supported clothing that would make the ideal silhouette. So, that's just, it's very interesting to me that, like, it was a mechanical process. Yeah. And... It also really makes sense why it might have been so difficult to make those changes because it wasn't like you were just removing something troublesome. You were destabilizing the entire structure of your clothing if you were making any of these changes. And so I think it's especially interesting and especially brave. But it also makes the shapes that came out of these early, like, sewing patterns and from the Rational Dress Society, things like that. Like, it makes sense how they ended up, the shapes that they ended up if you're looking at it through that lens and not just the lens of practicality
0: yeah
1: yeah and so the process of getting dressed in the time right before all of this really really took hold um, was super time consuming it wasn't like I mean and I guess this is sort of a stereotype for, like, a businesswoman. But women weren't just throwing on a bra, a slip, pantyhose, a dress, pumps. Like, that is a relatively straightforward thing. Mm -hmm. Don't at me about foundation (laughs) garments. I am team slip. I don't care if anybody else (laughs) is not. It's cool. You do you. Um, so when getting dressed, fashionable women would first put on stockings, which would be gathered under the knee with elastic bands or tied there with ribbon, um, that could reduce circulation to the legs Mm -hmm. because you have to have them tight enough to not fall down. Um, You might put on um, very high, hard to button shoes because once your corset was on, you couldn't (laughs) really bend down and do that. Um, And so instead of just like what we would think of as normal underwear now there were many layers involved at least two pieces which I mean arguably there are now but these were a lot more bulky um, so you would have drawers and a chemise because You needed to have a separate area, like the drawers would be split so you could use the bathroom while not having to undress because you couldn't undress. Um, And you might have, and those drawers themselves were, funnily enough, generally speaking, trousers. (laughs) (laughs) Um we don't think of them as that, but they are essentially knee-length pants already. Um but then you have your corset that is generally speaking boned and the and We've discussed corsets and how corsets shouldn't hurt if they fit properly yes. um but they certainly are a structured garment and aren't necessarily the best for taking really solid deep breaths right and I mean you certainly cannot say pick up something off the floor that you do <laughs> no. um anything like that, so um once you've got that on then you've got a corset cover and then a bustle you know to make your butt look really big (laughs) and your waist look really small and then you would have and bustles are like they can have pleats and a lot of extra fabric and then you would have a petticoat on top of that so we're still doing underwear here yeah uh which is a lot um and then you might put on a gown which might also have a boned bodice so in addition to the boning in your corset and your skirt might be stiffened. There may be additional fabric in the back for fullness. And that's, like, reasonable weather. You're still gearing up. If it's up. cold. <laughs> yeah. If, if it's cold, then, you know, you might have a jacket that would also maybe be beaded. Um, basically, uh, according to this um, exhibition in uh, at Ohio State, a complete outfit could weigh as much as 25 pounds. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, Getting reasonably close to, like, wearing fire. I was just Googling. I was just looking up how much that weighs. I think it weighs about 50 pounds, I think. Um. But I might just be thinking about the axe. I don't know. Anyway, so you can see how frustrating it would be to be like you would be exhausted before you even started doing any physical activity just by way of dealing with the sheer amount of weight and bullshit that you are under
0: and firefighter gear weighs around 45 pounds that's just the the clothing aspect that's not including any firefighting accoutrement
1: that may be tacked on as well uh yeah so i i think that if you've got all of the mask and the axe and all the tanks and all the nonsense also connected it weighs about as much as i do which is like what that that's that's a lot of bullshit and i'm just imagining uh ladies at this time walking around with me on the just, just like yo like hanging in the most inconvenient ways like around the waist upside down like anyway um so uh, long full skirts they were the first thing that reformers were like uh no because they were actually a practical and health hazard because you would drag them on the ground and then bring in whatever the hell was on the ground back i always thought cleaning those would have been a bitch cuz the bottoms are always so dirty. Yeah, I agree. Um Uh yeah. So basically everything is heavy, everything is collecting crap from everywhere you walk. And then imagine wearing all of those undergarments that are weighted in all different directions and trying to walk upstairs. Oh God, nope. <laughs> up, possibly, down, nope. <laughs>
0: yep. Because when you hold all up, you couldn't even see over it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so the reformers, they weren't looking for, like, let's get naked (laughs) and run around outdoors
0: they're like we don't want to fall and bust our shit and we don't want to walk around with a toddler on toddler like on three different places
1: well and they they wanted things to be practical but also Mm -hmm. modest presumably because they didn't want to deal with dudes no one really ever wants to deal with
0: dudes Mm -hmm. being dudes
1: no, and so, and, and I totally get that. Um, they didn't want legs to be revealed. They didn't want things to be tight-fitting. They were hoping for, um, well, sometimes there were matching trousers with a knee-length skirt worn over it. So, things that wouldn't look drastically different from normal dress, but were orders of magnitude more practical. Which just makes the whole thing even more sad that they would have to fight yeah. so hard. Yeah, and the funny thing is, like, trousers, uh, specifically the ones called pantalettes, had been worn under skirts in France um since the early 1800s and they were later also very fashionable for young girls and they were also being seen um and i believe this is still in france specifically for like gymnasium outfits presumably this was like uh gender segregated Mm -hmm. activities But, um, they, so they were absolutely wearing pantalettes as those outfits way earlier than the rest of society would, would be familiar with, I guess. Um, and trousers were also often worn by women in, um, sanitariums and in communal societies Mm -hmm. because it's easier to move and easier to get dressed um so though trousers were not in wide and varied use outside of what i just described um Elizabeth Smith Miller, who I mentioned earlier, who was um, Stanton's cousin, adopted that costume for everyday dress because uh, it was practical and comfortable. And then she introduced it to her cousin, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and to Amelia Bloomer, who is the editor of The Lily, Mm -hmm. which was um, a feminist track That was devoted to temperance and women's reform. And so the, uh, so then Bloomer began wearing the shortened skirt and trousers and then wrote about it in the Lily. And then a local newspaper in Seneca Falls, New York, um, basically said something nice about it and then other newspapers also wrote about it and then nicknamed the clothing style the Uh bloomer and so (laughs) um amelia bloomer observed that though coverage on the subject in newspapers was pretty widespread, that quote some of our editorial brethren commend us highly while others cry out against this quote um, usurp usurpation? I don't know how to say that word out loud. Um, To usurp is the non-conjugated verb um, usurp usurpation of the rights of man so you're usurping the rights of of men by what rights of men are you usurping (laughs) like what ones what can men no longer do because because this woman has long pants under also a pretty long skirt. I, I fail to see the problem. Nobody asked for my opinion, <laughs> though. Um, uh, so in the 1850s, the whole bloomer costume became used in a pretty widespread way in Europe speci- specifically England and Germany adopted a similar costume for um, everyday wear and or sports and supporters in America were like oh hey um, this is practical and comfortable and also allows me to do healthy amounts of movement shocking Um, and they also, and I found this to be interesting, saw moral and patriotic qualities in its simplicity. And so, it was less waste. It was less, like, over-the-top conspicuous consumption. Like... I can see how you would make a moral argument in the same way that um, temperance was also a moral argument by women who did not want to be um, beaten by drunk husbands, largely. Um, And so it's really interesting to me that both sides are making... An argument about morality, but have come to extremely different conclusions in ways that make very little sense. But whatever, people are wound up, women wearing trousers. Oh shit. (laughs) End of the world. End of the world. Um, And of course, eventually, wearing pants would become associated with women's rights movements, um, though that wasn't... They happened to evolve alongside each other, and I'm not entirely sure that the people who were advocating for reasonable dress for, like, riding a bicycle were necessarily all in with all of the other aspects that are sort of tied into women being able to move around in society more easily. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also not surprising that all of those things came together when they did and around the groups that were involved. Kind of a perfect storm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so, women, uh, like pants, as it turns out. Yep. Yep. And they didn't ever really go away again, which I think is kind of fascinating, um, there are just so many different directions that this can that this conversation can go. like there are emancipation suits, which are like a union suit, so you know, one um, one piece long underwear, like that were that would have been. A really dramatic improvement probably over many, many layers of undergarments. Even though we think of it now as a bit much. Um, And those undergarments could also be purchased in separate parts that buttoned, suddenly making it possible for you to maybe use the bathroom more easily or dress yourself. And so there are just a lot of places in daily life that dress reform sort of unexpectedly shows up in. But um, rational dress and dress reform basically really took hold. And stuck around. Thank God. Because women wanted to ride bicycles. And that's kind of cool. It is very cool. And it's
0: uh, certainly helpful that they had something that was a catalyst for this that they could use that men couldn't use against them necessarily. I mean, obviously, they're going to find a way to use it against them anyway. but, But that they didn't have... Uh, men couldn't firmly a very strong, rational argument against it.
1: No. Um, and because the people visibly involved were largely women with money mm-hmm. at the beginning, there was only a certain amount of pushback that society could bring because those women had the um, ability to withstand that kind of scrutiny. Mm -hmm. They had the privilege to be visibly doing what they were doing. And it is... It's just a very interesting combination of all of the right things coming together at all of the right times, and women being like, fuck it, I want to ride my bike. And also yo pants yes so so yeah that is um just a a glancing outline of Victorian dress reform but it gives you the general idea and there are a couple of interesting stories that I found that I will share in Patreon about early adopters um one of whom had a doll made of her that was in full men's dress that was extremely popular um, in, like, toy selling for little girls. That's awesome. And, yeah, it's really cool. So um, I'll talk about that on Patreon, but this is, you know, a, a little glossing over of dress reform. That was lovely.
0: Do you know what that brings
1: Thank us you. to? I can guess. <laughs> I bet it's the weekly, the weekly worst way, worst way to die. <laughs> Indeed. All right. What's
0: yours? Uh pretty much just anything bike related. Like, uh, with my luck, I would get something caught in a wheel, fly off, and just, you know, manage to crack my head spectacularly.
1: I did land on my head when I got hit by the SUV. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Not ideal. So I'm actually going to agree with you. I'm going to go full, uh, well, I guess getting hit by a truck while riding a bicycle. That's... Because I know it sucks because I have done it. Yeah, don't do that again. I will be completely honest and say that I just do not ride my bicycle very often anymore at all because of it. Oh, that makes sense. And, I mean, this was a very, very long time ago. But, yeah. So, uh, you know, wear a helmet. Yes. Absolutely do you even though that seems to be waning right now yeah. do you... in popularity again it, sh- it shouldn't yeah. uh, protect the noggin dude Nah, it's
0: bullshit right do you want to Always. ride bikes with us and be spooky internet friends or maybe just be spooky internet friends because bikes can be scary you can find us at bones and Bobbin. yes on instagram <laughs> facebook twitter all of the social medias Or you can just go to BonesandBobbins.com.
1: Yes, you can definitely go to there. It's where the show notes live. Um, And don't forget to rate and review this podcast specifically if you like it. It's totally fine for you to skip that step if you don't because that's cool. We don't need to be for everyone. But... If you like us, please do rate and review because it pleases the internet gremlins. And that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us. Bring forth the morbid souls! All <laughs> of them! Oh, and we have received special dispensation to feed those internet gremlins at any time of the day. So. Anytime. so it'll be all right
0: yeah and on that note Mm -hmm. let us leave you with some advice that you should never yes ever forget lock your doors
1: and don't don't run with scissors don't do it no nope Hmm. not even a little bit Oh my goodness and on that note Goodbye, everyone. Have a good rest of your week. Goodbye! Each episode of the Bones
0: and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Hayley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.